Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon, where we talk rock, and uh, we also talk to Alan Nevin. Uh, bonjour, Monsieur Alain. How are you? I'm good. Little sprinkle of snow today. Winter's coming. I know. You're, we we in Montreal here, and we're we're, we're recording this just before just before December. Uh, I'm looking at grass, and I've got 15 degrees outside. And you in Arizona are staring at snow, which is which is that's exactly the way I like it. By the way. Yeah, but a lot of my friends look at grass too, but not outside. <laughs> um, you know, what? one thing I wanted to, uh, or the other thing is, you don't change your time in Arizona, and yesterday, the Ontario government decided that they will no longer change the time and stick to daylight savings time, but they had a caveat, so it'll never happen. You want to, the, the caveat's very interesting. They said... They will pass this law and enact it if, if Quebec and New York State that. go along go along with it. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe soon we we will be like you and we will never have to change our clocks again. But anyway, uh, so speaking of uh, changing our clocks, let's go back in time to In Excess. Uh, Andrew Ferris, like I said, has a new album out called Love makes the world and uh, the fun fun album it's, it's actually going to be very different for uh in excess fans because if you're ex- if you're expecting a rock pop or a pop rock kind of record uh it's got a bit of a country twang to it in fact not a bit it's got, it's got a lot of country twang to it uh are you familiar with in oh yes you are familiar with in excess the, um, uh, guns and roses well, opened for them or something like that didn't they well, the, opened. Yes, I like to qualify yes. that word in this particular event because um, we were all part of a one-day festival at the old Cowboys Stadium down in Texas, and we had people like uh, Iggy playing, and Ziggy played, Ziggy Marley. That was a, it was a really cool and good eclectic lineup. It was almost like an English festival, and I thought it was a good idea. And uh, In Excess were closing the show, and Guns were playing penultimately just before In Excess. And at the time it was offered to us, um, it seemed to me like a good way to say, thank you, good night, we're done, on the appetite touring that this would be the last show um, of, of that album cycle and a good way to go out. And, you know, Texas can be fun if you're not there too long. They have some pretty girls down there. So anyway, um, Axel was not in the best of moods for some reason. And as we were waiting to go on stage, he kind of wandered off and I had to go after him and persuade him to come back and walk up the ramp and go on stage. And during the set, he was expressing his ennui by kicking monitors, wedge monitors, into the photographer pit. And this uh, production manager for In Excess um, came and presented himself before me and got a very approximate to my face and informed me that if Axel kicked one more monitor, we were, we were going to have to go at it, boy. 
at which point I took my jacket off and I said, let's go. And I had a couple of our crew in approximation as well. So I figured with the, this was going to be an entertaining set with the band kicking monitors into the pit and trying to play to a huge audience while their staff were punching it out behind the stage. Um, but fortuitously, um, the guy backed down when I took my jacket off and wandered off and sulked. And uh, the very next day, the punchline is the very next day, as I got on a plane to go back to LA, this gentleman who came sat next to me and asked if I'd been at the show. And I said, yes, I manage Guns N' Roses. And at that point, he kind of turned his shoulder against me and didn't speak to me for the whole flight to L.A. And that was Mr. Farris. Andrew Farris. Oh, oh, all right. That's interesting. I'm looking at the at this show here. You, you got to confirm a couple of things. So here it says it's September 17th, 1988, Texas Stadium. In Excess plays mm-hmm. 21 songs, it said. It said the Smithereens played 16, Iggy Pop 23, but to be fair, they're all one-minute songs for Iggy, so he probably played 24 minutes. And and Ziggy Marley played a dozen songs, but it says that Guns N' Roses played eight songs and had a slash guitar solo. Did you actually only play eight songs? Like, Did, did you cut your set, or was that your full time? Or did the website I'm looking at not actually write down every i mean did you just sort of come in and come out like hey everybody bye well Axel wasn't in the best of moods and of course uh <laughs> if i'm given uh the opportunity to um contribute a viewpoint on the circumstance i'd have always said quality over quantity my man we will play quality over quantity and you can have the rest and the other thing that I see in this set list, it says that you started your set with Drift Away. Is that, did you start with Drift Away, the Dobie Gray song? I don't know. I can't remember. It was another lifetime. I know. But that's just, that's just weird. I've never heard of Guns N' Roses doing Drift Away. I mean, I know Bon Jovi. Uh, were you copying Bon Jovi? My. No. Copying, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we could not wait to get out there and see a million faces and rock them all. <laughs> Whatever that fucking means, Bon Jovi. Yeah, but they they were doing the uh, Drift Away cover on their Slippery When Wet tour, and then I, this is two years late. Oh, oh, I see, I see what's going on there. All right. Oh, I see. Anyway, so yeah, you're crazy. It's so easy, Mister Brown. So anyway, so uh, let us get over to. Well, you know what? Uh, love makes Cross, the world. Let's get it. Let's get over to Mr. Barris and yes. find out how music is down under. Yes, love makes the world. That is important, and that's the name I of the. Agree uh, with that. That's the name of the album. Here is from in excess, the one, the only, Andrew Ferris. We are speaking to uh, Andrew Ferris. Uh, the new album is called Love Makes the World. It is, of course, an EP. And Andrew, of course, you might know him best. From his time in In Excess. And as we say here in Montreal, uh, bonjour, Andrew, comment allez-vous? How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Yes, and I, you know, I, before we got started, I answered the phone and I did, wasn't really paying attention because I was actually listening to the EP, not for the first time, for like the 10th time. And there's a song on there called All the Stars Are Mine. And it's got this sort of bass thump to it that it just—it's infectious. It's just terrific. So, uh, thank you for that. Uh, 2020 needed some feel-good music, and I'm telling you, these five songs 
uh, fit the bill. So uh, thank you for that. Um, let us quick go ahead. Thank you. Let us let us talk about this because you know you, when of course somebody says I'm an NXS fan, I'm going to check out the solo stuff or Gary Beer's stuff or whatever. They're they're expecting something, and this is a, a bit of a, a, a curveball for them. But it's a great curveball. Talk to me about the sound of the album and writing in this style and, and being aware that, hey, you know what? I'm not writing necessarily for the NXS fan, but I'm hoping that they'll hop on the train and join me on this journey. Right. Well, first of all, I hope so, too. And I'm glad you're enjoying listening to all the stars of mine. That, uh, yeah, I'm really I've been very, very pleased with the uh, how many people have of uh you know really tuned into that song and well in fact the ep i'm kind of a bit overwhelmed it's been doing really well and i just wanted to say that uh you know being really uh you know the main songwriter one of the main songwriters in excess for all those years i you know i i didn't start out uh automatically wanting to have the kind of solo career i have right now what happened was I've always been a songwriter, like I, like I just said, for, for, for the band. And I've worked with a lot of other artists too, both as a music producer and as a songwriter. And um, I, I like working with other songwriters. I trust myself to write a song by myself. I'm okay with that. But also, you know, I also enjoy working with other songwriters because I always learn something new, you know, and I, I, I learn about their life, not just about my life. I learn about their philosophies on things, and I find that every time, you know, I come out of it feeling that I've experienced something important when I work with somebody. Yeah, you've done some. Uh, you've done some great work, by the way, with uh, the rock band Gun out of uh, Scotland. Just a great, great hard rock band that folks in North America really need to discover. Uh, in terms of songwriting here, you of course were the main or the principal songwriter. One of them, you and Michael and In Excess. When you're writing songs for yourself, is it a different process in the sense that you don't, you can't turn to Gary and say, "Hey, I need one of your classic bass lines." Hey, Tim, I need one of your. Is it a very different process working alone, or when you were with In Excess, did you sort of work alone or with Michael and then just say, "Okay, here, band, let's go record these songs." How did the process work, and has it changed at all? Well, I, you know, look. To be honest, uh, the way I used to work. Uh, a lot was that I would work out a lot of the the beats and grooves and riffs and parts and all the the parts on in excess you know songs and recordings. I had worked a lot of them out before I even walked in the room to play my ideas to people or to Michael or anybody um, and i and I had a pretty good idea what I, I wanted to do, but I also know that you know there's such a talented group of musicians within in excess that that they would if they could come up with a part that was better than the parts that I'd written or whatever, that's cool too. Uh, I just, you know, I always try to make a, you know, as much uh, headway as possible when I was writing. Um, you know, I, I, it's funny, you know, because all the years I was touring with the band, you know, uh, I would never play a lot of the guitar riffs on stage that I actually wrote. Uh, but that didn't bother me because, I would just felt really lucky that these guys, such an awesome band as In Excess, was playing my song in the first place. Uh, it didn't really bother me. But when it comes to what I'm doing now as Andrew Farris with my EP and the work that I'm doing, I, 
you know, I still do the same thing. If I, if I want to write a piece, uh, you know, or like a, uh, a piece of music, uh, it could be a riff or a, you know, what another instrument is playing. I'll just write it and I'll ask the musicians, can you please play this? You know? And most of the time they do. Um, so I feel really lucky like that, you know? It's great. So, so how did how did you end up becoming the principal songwriter? Because there, there's a whole bunch of people in the band. They've all got ideas. They're all musicians. How did the weight of becoming the songwriter fall on your shoulders? Did you just have better songs? Or did the other ones just not know what they were doing? Or, I mean, did you choose straws? How did they go, okay, Andrew, you're the guy. And let me tell you, it worked out really well. Yeah, I, I think that's the kind of complicated question. I think, first of all, you've got to go back way back when. Uh, you know, really, my songwriting sort of partnership, if you like, started with Michael Hutchins and myself when we were kids in high school. And before I was really working with either my brothers or the other guys in the band, I was already working with Michael. And the way we worked was that he, Michael wasn't actually playing an instrument. His instrument was, uh, you know, he sung a bit and he was very shy about that at first. And he used to write <clears throat> really good poetry. And I, I observed and acknowledged that. And I used to write lyrics too. And, you know, but we talked about lyrics a lot. And, but for me, I played various instruments, including guitar and keyboards and things and harmonica. Um, you know, but for me, it was more that I really found with Michael that where we work together so well for an excess as songwriters is because we had different skill sets and that by working together, you know, I'd create music beds or whole, you know, arrangements and riffs and grooves or whatever I was doing, you know, I'd program drum machines and stuff. But when I got together with Michael, it was something very personal and special with the two of us where, you know, it wasn't a competition. That's one of the big things that we talked about not long before he passed away. We used to joke about it and say, you know, we're not competitive with each other because it actually benefited in excess hugely that Michael and I weren't competitive as songwriters. I think for other bands, they can get into a lot of trouble when they start getting jealous and weird about this person does that and I don't get enough of this or whatever. But Michael and I never felt like that. All we felt was, you know, it was a good combination because our skill, we needed each other and our skill set soothed each other. Yeah, they, they really did. So let me get over to, to Love Makes the World here again. Uh, my co-host on the show is Alan Niven, who used to manage Guns N' Roses, and he wrote uh, pretty much all the songs for Great White. And I've had this discussion with him as to what makes a great hard rock song and, and so on and so forth. What for you makes a, a, a good song? What's sort of the, 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 the secret sauce that makes a good song? And you know, as you're getting into Love Makes the World, the EP, and then uh, next year, the, the full-length album, ha- has the ingredients changed in what makes a good song, or is a good song a good song? And, and sort of how do you know? what What's that, the songwriter's part of you that goes, yeah, this one's good, and nope, that one goes to the pile? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, over the years, uh, for me as a songwriter, I've written so many songs. I mean, I must have written over 300 songs with Michael for an excess. Um, the other guys in the band contributed songs too, but, you know, I guess I was pretty prolific back then and I still am. I've continued to write songs, but I don't always know exactly 
if I'm writing a song, whether the song is outstanding or just ordinary or not good at all. I'm not sure sometimes. And so what I often do and the way I've worked <clears throat> my whole career, the way I work as a songwriter is I'll write a song uh, either by myself or with somebody else. And, and I don't rush the song out to people. I usually put it in the corner of the room. That doesn't mean it's in the naughty corner. It just means I'm not sure what the little animal is yet. And then I, I kind of, I listen to it as time goes on. Sometimes I, I like it within, you know, a week. Sometimes I'm not sure in a year. And sometimes 10 years go by and I'll pull that song out again and I'll listen to it and I'll say, yeah, this song still sounds okay to me. It's good. And then I usually is my indicator that <clears throat> if this thing can stand the test of time, then I'll put it out. That's the way I've always worked. And I used to do it with an excess too, where I would write, you know, riffs and songs and whatever, and I would put them aside. And I've had record producers freak out when I told them, like you say, a song called New Sensation. I say, yeah, I actually wrote the, the, the music for that five years ago. And they're like, what? You know, why didn't you tell me? I said, well, because I, I was just getting used to it, you know? And that's the way I've always worked. That's that's fascinating because you hear a lot of guys that will say, oh, I wrote whatever. I want to hold your hand in five minutes while I was waiting for the bus. And you go, really, what? So so you let them sort of, um, what's the word? for you, you let them sort of ferment on the shelf like a fine wine? That That's interesting. Have you, so you've always, always done that? There, there's no song that you just go, ooh, this one's ready. Let's go. You don't have that five minute, I wrote a great song story? <clears throat> I think some of the songs that That's in the fascinating. of In Excess's career, right? Uh, yeah, not not all the songs were like that. Some of them, for example, uh, Need You Tonight, uh, I wrote uh, that song with a cab uh, waiting outside. I called a cab to take me to uh, the airport to go work with Michael where he was living in Hong Kong and I was in Sydney. And I wrote the music and I put it on a cassette back in those days which is funny because they've become kind of hip again with younger people cassettes. Anyway, I put it on a cassette and I took the music over with a cab driver waiting for me, which was weird anyway. So I got to Hong Kong and then I played it to Michael and within about 10 minutes he'd written that lyric and that song was kind of born. That was a little different, but there's other songs that definitely took a lot longer than that for me to be comfortable with and, I don't think that everything that I do all the time is necessarily great um, or even good. I don't know. You know, I'm just mm. like everybody else. I think the difference with what we just talked about was in those years when I was writing with Michael, especially for with songs like What You Need, which was top five in the U.S., and then uh, that was from the Smike Thieves album. Then from the Kick album, we, we wrote songs that had uh, top five songs all around the world. And during that period, the pressure was enormous on us to to come up with these things to, to, to give to the band and to the record company and to the radio stations. And so we would write quite fast. But I remember that one of the things I really respected and admired about working with Michael is he was just like me. We were very, um, what's the word? Uh, we used to test our songs. We used to we used to make sure that what we had written was as good as we could possibly write. It wasn't like, uh, you know, people will just love everything you do. In fact, one of the things that you'll see with many artists and acts around the world is that they get on, they get on a train 
and they think it's all really exciting and they put all this music out and then one day they put out a song and nobody likes it. And it's like uh, being in a, in a stadium with the old Roman emperor and you know, the thumbs are up or the thumbs are down and you can be groovy one minute and they can hate you the next, you know? And that's just the reality with the, with that kind of business, you know? Um, and there's so much competition too. Like there's always up and coming people and that's great. And there'll be people that, you know, that have been on before who are better than you. But one of the more funny things about I've found about releasing songs on radio is that if you have enough hits yourself, you end up competing with yourself. Yeah, you do. You you take that 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 uh, golden three minute slot away from another song. Um, let me just ask you about about albums and putting it out in 2020. I was first approached to interview you. I think it was back in January or February. You know, he's got this album coming out. I, I think it was slated for April. I might have been or maybe May. And then the pandemic hit and stuff shut down. They went okay. Forget it. We're holding off, and now the uh, the full length is holding off to twenty twenty one. Talk to me about that decision because there there is obviously you know the machine has to move. You know you you got to get the album out. You got to do the promotion. You got to go do the shows or the showcases or you know go go sing at the Super Bowl or whatever. And of course you can't do any of that now. But the other the other side is a lot of people are locked down. They got nothing to do and sitting around discovering new music, new TV shows, new Netflix movies. So what what went into your decision? Did you sort of say, no, I want to do it the traditional way with a cycle, album, interviews, out we go? Or And, and can you see the, the whole part of, well, fans had nothing to do. Maybe maybe I should have filled the void. Well, how did you, you make the decision to hold off? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. That's right. I was actually releasing my self-titled LP, you know, Andrew Farris, and I'd already released two tracks from the LP, Come Midnight and Good Mama Bad. Um, and they were getting good reception. And, of course, that's right, what you said, that then the virus kicked in all around the world, including Australia. And I had an uh, interesting conversation with um, and, and communication with uh, Broken Bow Records out of Nashville and also BMG, which is my label for the rest of the world. And they recommended I hold off on continuing to release my album because the world went nuts and it's still trying to pull itself out of this terrible virus thing. Um, but during that time, around about March or whatever it was, when I, I paused my album, which by the way, will come out on March 19th in 2021. Um, and I'd want to thank people who've pre-ordered my album. I really appreciate that. It's, I didn't want to like mess everyone around. It was a virus thing. But anyway, so what happened was that I started thinking more about, songs that I'd written and just like we talked about before that I had just shelved or put in the corner of my, of my mind for a while. And I started thinking about the lyrics on the love makes the world, my EP and all these songs I had. And I started, I'd luckily I'd recorded quite a few of them and I was happy with the recordings. And so I suggested to the record label, look, why don't I put these out? Um, maybe people will enjoy them. I don't know. It seems like these lyrics make sense with what we're all going through. And I thought the labor would say, no, no, we don't want to do that, you know. But they didn't. They said, that's a great idea. And then that's why now we're talking about my EP with the five tracks. Now, is the EP uh, songs from the album that you pulled out? Or will it, will you add them as bonus tracks if they're not already there? Or are these really two separate entities? And, we're, you know, are they just two separate things? Yeah, they're two completely separate entities. That's right. That's right. 
Love Makes the World, my EP, is completely different okay. than my album, Andrew Farris. That's right. And the songs, uh, are, yeah, completely different. That's right. Is the musical style different as well? Uh, not exactly. Okay. Some of it is and some of it isn't similar to my album. Uh, I just felt, to me, it was the lyrics on this EP that made the most sense to me to to put out at this time because I think what the world is going through and still experiencing is extraordinary and, and very difficult for a lot of people. And I felt that the subject matter lyrically was something as a songwriter and as a communicator with people that they, I might touch somebody's heart or help them in some way. Then that'd be great. Oh no, it is. Um, now I don't know how much time they gave us. I can't remember, but do you have time for a couple more questions? Sure. I, 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 was it 15 minutes or 20 minutes they gave us? I can't remember. Anyway. It doesn't matter. We're talking. We're talking. Well, so, yeah, I can, t- I, I can tell you a little bit about each of the songs on, on the EP if you'd like. Yeah, do that. And then uh, I, I do want to ask you a, an, another question. But, yeah, I'd love to hear that because, I, again, I, I when I research stuff and I listen to stuff and, I, and I've been a fan, I don't just do 15 seconds and out. I listen to this whole five-song EP a bunch of times and... I just really like the way it flows. And I know some will say, well, it's, it's more country than it's, you know, it's not. Who cares? A great song is a great song. And My Brother is fantastic. Love Makes the World is fantastic. All the Stars Are Mine are fantastic. And the other two songs are fantastic. It's, I mean, you know, kudos. Well done. So, yeah, go ahead. Let, let, let's hear the story Thank on you. each. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'll keep it brief because you, you said a bunch of nice things. In, but I, I appreciate it. I just want to say, Look, Tears in the Rain is really about nature, the environment. You know, we only have one Earth. And uh, I know we, you know, you read about in the papers or you see online all this stuff about scientists and spaceships and whatever else and the new planets or whatever. All I know is we only have one planet and we live on it together and we better look after it. That's really what that song's about. And there's two brothers uh, many years ago, that, uh, that about 10, 12 years ago, they set out to rescue the orangutans as an endangered species in Borneo, in the jungle. And 10 years later, they've raised over $900,000 and secured 140,000 acres of, of uh, rainforest for this endangered species. That's pretty good for a couple of kids that set out to do that. Um, yeah, my brother is really about loss of a male figure in your life. Uh, I co-wrote the song with a good friend of mine, John Stevens, and uh the song is about, yeah, you know, losing someone, a male figure in your life and uh, how, you know, it's difficult to express those emotions. And, and that's what that song's about. Love Makes the World is really about the cycle of life. It's about, you know, how, how we we don't get through life, um, you know, without help from other people. Right from the moment we're born, right to the end of your life. It's the way it works. Um, All the Stars of Mine is really about, <clears throat> for me, it was about, you know, uh, Having at one point in my life, I, I didn't live in Australia. I lived in the UK or in London for nearly five years. And uh, uh, two of my three children were born when I lived there. When I came back to Australia, I reflected on that along with the, my co-writer, Susie DeMarchi, who had a similar experience with her family in the United States, came back to Australia. And then you reflect on that and you think about it and you think, well, you know, by having children born in a foreign country, it makes the world a, a little bit closer because you're the people closest to you, you in your life are experiencing a foreign culture and the politics of that country and the food and, you know, the good and bad. But 
it, it makes you think a lot about where you live, not just where they live. Um, and the last track being First Man on Earth is basically about how it's, it's way too long. I apologize for that. It's eight minutes and eight seconds long. But the song is really about us, again, as human human beings. You know, we're just human beings, a biological species uh, living on Earth. And yet we're obsessed with technology. I'm talking to you with technology right now. There was different technology in 50 years' time. There'll be different technology in another 50 years' time. But we keep on going as a biological species. And the questions that are asked in that song is, where is this going? And, and it always... Uh... That that's one thing that always intrigues me because I look at my I have my iPhone sitting here next to me and I'm going we have reached the the end of the world and of course in 30 years they're going to look back at this and go wow you used one of those really how <laughs> right? right I mean that, I mean listen right, right. I mean I, listen we all grew up in a household with a dial a dial a you know rotary dial phone and and now we look at that and you go really you used a rotary dial how? why you know um, yeah I'll, I'll well, ask here, now, now wait a minute go ahead. yeah wait a minute. I agree. And here's the thing, see, is that apart from, to me, some advances in, in medicine and, and, and other things, which have been really wonderful, you know, a lot of it is driven by people making money. I don't know it necessarily makes our lives any better. Um, some of it does with technology, but some of it doesn't. And, you know, some people misuse it too. But the interesting thing about it, all of it, is that, well, what never changes for us as human beings is we all need to get good quality food and drink clean water, have a roof over our head, and the air needs to be clean. That's all I know. And that's why I live in Canada. Cause we, no, I'm kidding. We have all of that. But all right, I'll ask you two final questions, and uh, and then uh, we'll 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 move along here uh, because this has been. I mean, I could go another hour, but. Uh, it is the 30th anniversary of the X album or the 10 album. Uh, but I want to know about the pressure going into that because Kick comes out and lights the world on fire. It is currently certified at over 20 million sold worldwide. And of course, certifications are not always kept up to date. It's probably at 25 or 30 million uh, actual sold by now. What was the pressure like from you artistically? from the band, from the management, from the record companies, and, and all the, the, the radio guys going, all right, mother, you just did kicks. Let's see what you got. Was, was X an easy process, and you just had the songs, and you had the motivation, or were you under the gun to come up with something, and did you feel that pressure? And then, of course, X comes out, and you've got, uh, you know, you've got Suicide Blonde and By My Side, and, and of course, uh, you know, Victory Goes to the Songwriters. But how, how difficult was that process going into that, knowing that you had to better a 20 million selling record? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, obviously, there was pressure there, but I, I think a lot of it was, the, a lot of the pressure was actually caused uh, going into the X album because we toured so hard to promote the Kick album because it was in everyone's interest, including in excesses for us to promote that record. And to keep touring. Um, and I think that that pressure of the touring to me was worse than the pressure of, of following the album up. Uh, and I think it was tough on us physically. And I'm, I really felt for my younger brother, John, he, he really was really struggling as a drummer, you know, because we were, we were on tour for like 14 or months or 
18 months. I don't even know anymore how long it was. Look, the point is, is that going into the X album, it was more an artistic art factor. And for me, I recognize too, because, you know, uh, with the band's blessing, which was in itself a, a miracle, uh, they'd agreed that Michael and I would write all the songs on the Kick album, which is what we did. Um, and I felt we did a good job. Uh, and so when the next album rolled around, uh, the other guys, understandably, you know, like in one sense, were like, well, hey, we want to start writing songs again. And and so I'm like, well, sure, okay. And when they, they started to say that, I started to work more old school just on a piano with an acoustic guitar and a you know, pen and paper and start to write songs. And I, I wasn't making elaborate demos like I had before that, you know, to give to everybody with parts and riffs and grooves and stuff. And because I thought that's what they wanted was to be able to contribute. So I remember there's a funny moment where I walked into the recording studio to start recording the X album and the record producer, Chris Thomas, who'd produced Kick and Listen Like Thieves, said, I started playing my songs. And he said, what's with the acoustic guitar and the piano and the, and, and the lyrics scribbled? And I said, well, that's my song, you know. And he's like, where's the where's the demos that you normally make? You know, we we want to hear the demos, you know. And I'm like, well, I thought everyone wanted to write and contribute, you know, to this rec- next record. You know, and there's a kind of silence in the room. And he goes, no, no, you need to go home and make your demos sound like they did before. I'm like, well, sure, I can do that. And uh, with Kirk's uh, help from the band, he, he helped me upgrade some of the technology, the recording equipment that I had. And I went back home and I... I put together some demos and then Michael and I actually worked together in New Zealand, uh, in Auckland, I think in a recording studio, making more fancy sounding demos. And then we bought them back. But I think the X album was a really great album. I think it was an exciting album. I think it was difficult. You're right to follow up the kick album, but we did, we followed it up. (laughs) Yeah, you did. And, uh, and first of all, thank you for your time. And I'll finish on this. I I grew up through the eighties as you know, a hard rock fan. I, I was all about Kiss and and Motley Crue and and you know Def Leppard and Bon Jovi when they were still sort of hard rock bands. And yet, whenever In Excess showed up on Much Music up here in Canada, I listened. I paid attention. I didn't change the channel. I didn't get out of the seat and walk to the TV and turn the dial because you know back then we didn't have remotes. Um, what was right. it about? What was it about the band? that was able to cross genres because not everybody could do it. You know, Duran Duran had some success and, and of course, you know, Bon Jovi had success with other, going the other way, but what is it about the band? Was it, was it just the songs? Was it the look? Was it the energy of the, why was NXS able to cross the boundaries and not be, Oh, you're a new romantic. Oh, you're a pop band. And because you weren't, you were just in excess. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, and I think that is something I've always admired about In Excess, too, and I was in the band. Uh, look, I, I think what it is was we were born out of the pubs in the Australian rock scene, and when we started traveling and working in 52 countries around the world, you begin after a while, you start to say, look, I, you know, I, I'm a citizen of the world, and people are enjoying the music we're making. Is it really that important what genre we're, we're in? Not really. The important thing is that, that that people like what we're doing. And so I think for the record companies, we were kind of nightmare because we didn't just make hard rock or, you know, 
uh, or EDM, or we didn't just do funk, and we didn't just do pop, and we didn't, you know, we would do just about anything we felt like doing. And we always did that, and I'm proud of the fact that we did that. It causes some trouble sometimes with the record labels, but I think in the long term, I mean, I I won't say which names, but some very well-known people who you would know, uh, often uh, three of them on separate occasions said to me, one of the strange or amazing things with an excess is music is it's still on some contemporary radio stations all around the world. And there's not many artists that happens to anymore. And I say, well, it's because we used to mix up genres. It didn't matter. What matters is the recording. And I'll, I'll say this as a, a total compliment. If, if you ask me what genre is in excess, I don't know. To me, it's, you're just in excess. Exactly. I have, like, yeah, that's right. You know, and, and there's a lot of bands you can go, no, that's a punk band. The Sex Pistols are punk. This, and, but in excess, right. in excess is in excess. So I don't know. What, I mean, you're, yeah, I, are you, I, you're not I, a pop I really band. I those guys and I miss them. Mitch, yeah. it's yeah. been lovely talking Absolutely. to you. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Go. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.